Well, it's great to see you guys and gals today. Uh, it's a beautiful day to come. Worship the Lord, nice and cool and crisp. And uh, if you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. You're always welcome to be a part of anything we have going on that might pertain to you somehow. Uh, we're in a series that started the first of the year, going to go through the end of April, entitled Breakthrough. A Breakthrough is a series about the gospel of Mark. Mark was a, a companion of Paul and a companion of Peter, really. And uh, he wrote his gospel probably about 58, 60 A.D., right in there. Um, the Christianity was becoming more and more Gentile. And uh, Mark understood this, and he wanted to make sure that Gentiles who came from thoroughly pagan backgrounds had a really good understanding of Jesus. And uh, when you read the Gospel of Mark, it has the account of a lot of firsthand experiences, especially what we're going to see today. And those firsthand experiences didn't really come from Mark, and most likely they came from Peter. The early church fathers told us that Mark went to see Peter when he was in Rome, and, and Peter shared a lot of things with Mark, and Mark kind of took it and edited it, and, and we came up with his gospel. And here's the thing that's really, really important, as I've shared several times in this series, but I want you to see that writing to a primarily Gentile audience, Mark's account of the life of Jesus provided a breakthrough for people who knew nothing of the God who loved them. Understand, the Gentiles never knew the God who loved them. I mean, and Jews obviously read it as well. I get that. But he wrote something that could speak to people who didn't know the love of God. Today in our culture, there's so many people who know about God, who may believe things about God, but they've never truly experienced that love of God. And Mark can provide that breakthrough. And today in our fourth series, the fourth sermon in the series, we're going to be with breaking away from the unforgivable because there are people who think they can never be forgiven. And in Scripture, in the New Testament, in, in, in the Gospels and other places, there's the talk of a sin that is beyond forgiveness. So we're going to be there today in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 30. And here's what I want you to see from this message today. And it's this. There is a danger that if you keep refusing to follow Jesus... You may never follow Jesus. If you keep refusing to follow Jesus, you may just come to the point where you will never follow Jesus. So I begin today talking about Jesus and the unpardonable or unforgivable Sin. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard of the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. You know, and you may have ideas what it is. If you didn't grow up in church or you didn't, or you didn't come very often, you may not even know what we're talking about. But just about everybody has this concept. In our minds, there is this sin or a group of sins that if we do this, God will never forgive us. I mean, even in the mind of, of, of many Christians that I've known, many Christians for a long time, there's the idea, well, this one sin or this, this group of sins, uh, you do that. And God's never going to forgive you. And, and, and that's simply not really true at all. And so the importance of the unpardonable sin is that it points to something. There's a real issue at stake, and here's what it is. That the rare and specific unpardonable sin points to a common and general danger. That is rejecting Jesus. See, the real problem in life is that you reject Jesus. And if you keep rejecting Jesus... Well, therein lies your problem. You see, Jesus came, as we, as we shared uh, in the very first message, he came and he said and he preached, repent 
and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. Repent and believe in me. And then as we saw, he called people to follow, follow, follow. And, and people followed. Some people followed for legitimate reasons. You know, they believed he was Messiah or they saw some spiritual insight or in the future they would follow him as Savior. But for a lot of people, they just followed Jesus because of what Jesus did. Jesus, because of who he is, he's God. He would heal people. I mean, it's just who he is. And so if people needed healing, he would heal them. He didn't refuse healing to any of them. But the thing about it was he didn't come for that reason. And so he kept trying to get away from all those people who were crowding around him to heal. And in one of it, as he began to heal, uh, we share that, that, that the Pharisees and other religious leaders began to take note. And, you know, Jesus has kind of picked up the series. It's about a year into his ministry. And so he had gone to Jerusalem a couple of times and done some amazing things there. So he's getting the religious leaders' attention. And so the Pharisees are with him, and their concern is simply this, that Jesus was breaking the rules and traditions that they had set up. Specifically, they were in conflict with Jesus over keeping the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, as I shared with you before, is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, uh, also in Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Now, last week, I actually said a couple times that the Ten Commandments was found in Numbers. I have no idea why I said that. But none of you called me out on that. You guys need to figure out where the Ten Commandments come from also. Both of them, we're both in trouble on that. But the Fourth Commandment, Jesus uh, 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 says this, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And the purpose of the Sabbath was to free us up, to free us from work, to free us to worship. That's what it was for. But the Pharisees and others had taken that Sabbath commandment. And they had turned it into the purpose. In other words, <clears throat> they said the purpose of the Sabbath is just to keep the Sabbath. And so they come up with hundreds of rules and regulations. They made it a burden. And Jesus came to free from the burden of the system the Pharisees put in place. And it put him in constant conflict. And then Jesus did something that drove them all nuts. He healed on the Sabbath. And they decided to kill Jesus. And that's kind of where we left off. Now, in, in, their, in their desire to kill Jesus, Jesus then gets away. Uh, and, and he goes off, and, and he kind of hangs around the Sea of Galilee, resting, relaxing with the guys, but people keep pressing and pressing. During this time, Mark kind of gives us some summation. After chapter 3, verse 6, until we get to chapter 3, verse 20 today, Mark really takes a lot of what Peter told him and just summarizes it. And he talks about the fact that Jesus called 12 apostles, 12, 12 guys to 12. Um, and, and, and he called those guys. Um, in the process, Jesus, you know, as the crowds came around him, they came from everywhere, he tells us. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I told you all that if Jesus wanted to. He could have just stopped somewhere, opened up the shop. People would have come from all over the world. He could have healed them all and done all that stuff. He didn't come to heal. He came to preach the gospel, to bring salvation. So he didn't do that. Yet they still came from all over the world. Mark tells us that they came, you know, from obviously Galilee and Judea, the two main areas of where the Jews were, came from the city of Jerusalem, came all the way from Idumea, way in the south. They came from across the Jordan River. They came from the area of Sidon. They came from everywhere to Jesus. And all of this got the attention of religious leaders. And so we're going to come about a year and a half into the ministry of Jesus. And we see this in verse 20. And he came home. If you have some other versions, it may have said he came into a house. The Greek speaks of coming to a specific place. And so the New American Standard says he came home. Now, home was, to him was probably different than what we might think of a home. He had kind of left you know, family and all of that. So probably most think he was in Capernaum. 
And that's where Peter and Andrew lived and James and John. That kind of was his home base. He came to the place that was his home base to rest. And it says the crowd gathered again. And they were there to such an extent, they couldn't even eat a meal. They couldn't eat anything. There was people there. And so what was he doing? He was healing. He was ministering. He was touching lives. And he didn't even take time to eat because there were so many people. Verse 21 says that when his own people heard of this. Now, some of your versions, if you have the NIV, says when his family heard of it. The actual Greek says those from alongside of him. And uh, probably interpreting it would be family. Now, here's the thing. We're going to go through verse 30 today. In verse 31, when we're not going to get to, uh, the family of Jesus comes to him, comes to get him. Now, remember, at this point, the brothers of Jesus and other family members didn't believe him to be the Messiah. Obviously, his mother knew <laughs> who he was, but his mother is his mother. And, and, and you understand, they came to take custody of him, to, to, to really seize him. They were saying he lost his senses because all that was going on. Now, remember, people are crowding around Jesus. I mean, hundreds, thousands of people are coming to Christ, not to be Savior, but for him to heal them and to work miracles in their life. And in all of this, the religious leaders are wanting to kill him. And so they got people wanting to kill him. You got all these crowds wanting to take him. You got all these things happening. So his family comes to get him. Now, here's the thing. Mark doesn't say anything else about this until verse 31. In the midst of that, of what leaves here in verse 21 and what picks up in verse 31, he talks about another story. And this is an amazing story that would come from someone who was there. Verse 22 says, the scribes. Who are the scribes? Throughout the New Testament Gospels, we are told about scribes who were oftentimes linked with Pharisees. Now, they weren't Pharisees. They could be a Pharisee. You could be a scribe, but they weren't the same thing. But the scribes were the experts in the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The experts of the law. Sometimes they're called lawyers. They were, they were the people who today we would look at as being seminary professors and Bible college professors. These were supposed to be the people with all the knowledge. And oh, by the way, just because someone says they're an expert in the New Testament doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. I've seen a lot of those guys and gals. They got a lot of degrees and a lot of initials. And three of those initials, well, I won't say Dumb is four of those initials. Never mind. I just came off the top of my head. Forget that whole setup. But these were the people of academic life. I mean, these were the people who knew. And they knew what Jesus had done. He had been to Jerusalem twice by now. You see, these scribes came from Jerusalem. They had been to Jerusalem twice. He had drove the money changers out one time. He was going to do it again. He had healed people. He had healed on the Sabbath. He was angering everybody. And not only that, but probably the Pharisees who were out to get Jesus brought him down. And, and the Pharisees would have said, you won't believe all these things he's done. And he's been healing. In fact, in Mark, I'm assuming Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 11, which are parallel passages, he heals a guy that can't speak and can't hear. He did things no human being can do. He did things that are impossible, except for God. Now, granted, you know, in the Old Testament times, Moses did miracles. But Moses was the prophet of God. God did it. Moses was there to proclaim it. When the plagues came, Moses just said, hey, a plague's coming. And the plague came. It wasn't by Moses. Even the Red Sea, Moses, we talk about Moses parting the Red Sea. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses was on the shore. Moses just did this. God parted it all. It was all the power of God. And Elijah and Elisha, they did miracles. Elijah did seven, Elisha 14. I mean, they did some amazing things, but it was always the power, the power of God. 
Even the apostles would do miracles. Acts chapter 3, there's a guy who was born lame. Peter says, I don't have anything to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. In the name of Jesus to Nazareth, stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus, Jesus did it. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus didn't do miracles in anybody's name but his own. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, he healed a guy with a broken back. Before he healed him, the guy was paralyzed. He said, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And they were all thinking, no one can forgive sins but God, which is correct. And then Jesus said, because he knows their heart, so that you know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive. He said, pick up your mat and walk. He says, I have the authority. Now, they all knew this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees all knew this, and the scribes knew it. But they couldn't keep having Jesus do this. So the scribe says this. He is possessed by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub in some versions. Now, Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. It goes back to the Canaanite period in the Old Testament days. In, in the Old Testament, the gods of the Canaanites, the chief god was Baal. And there was a kind of a, you know, it was about the earth and the harvest, and Baal ruled. When Baal ruled, when Baal was at his peak every year, there was a time he was at his peak and time at his lowest. The flies would come out everywhere. If, where I come from in Texas, we get mosquitoes all the time. And those mosquitoes, you come from a place with a lot of mosquitoes, those little bloodsuckers, that's what they do. And you can't kill them. We all say, have a good freeze, it'll kill the mosquitoes. No, it doesn't. They come back out every year. You got to squash them. Here's what happens. When you squash a mosquito, you know what happens? More rise up out of the blood of those dead mosquitoes. You know, they're everywhere. Well, the flies would be everywhere. He was Lord of the Flies. And so the Jews would take that term, Lord of the Flies, as a slang, as a, as, as a mocking of the Baals, of the God of Baals. And here's what would happen. In time, they used Beelzebub as a reference to Satan. This is kind of a code word for Satan. In fact, he says this. He casts out the demons by the ruler, or some of your versions, the prince of the demons. That means the head. Whoever is in charge of those guys, and that's Satan, they all need that. Understand, they weren't dealing with the miracles. They couldn't really deal with the miraculous. Of all the healings, we took the leper, we saw that and healed him. Later on, he's going to raise dead people, they can't deal with that. So they focused on the demon possession. Because that was a time and a culture and a place where demons would possess people. And because, for a variety of reasons, which we don't have to go into today. But he would heal them and cleanse them. And so they were focusing on that. And they said, he does it because he is the prince of all demons. By leveling that accusation, they were bringing a formal charge against Jesus that he was doing the work of Satan. He was not God's man. He was not God in the flesh. He was the man of Satan. In essence, Satan in the flesh. That was a formal accusation they were bringing against him. And then we're told in the next verse that he called them to himself. He said, you guys, come here. And he called the scribes. Not very, very rarely do you see Jesus calling the religious leaders. He said, come to me. And he began speaking in parables. And he asked a very logical, common sense question. How could Satan cast out Satan? Have you guys thought of that? Have you thought about, you scribes, just how dumb it is to think that Satan who's trying to destroy the work of God, is going to fight against himself. That he's going to take the very demons that possess the people to destroy their lives. That beyond that, all those people who have been crippled and couldn't speak and who were hurting, who were infected by leprosy, all of them, he's going to heal all of them and make them all better. When every time someone is healed, every time a demon is cast out, every time someone 
walks. They praise God. Satan's doing that. He said in verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If you're in civil war, you're going to destroy your own self. Our civil war was devastating to our country. He said, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In other words, if, if a home life is in trouble and they don't get it resolved, it'll ruin the home life. Marriages can break apart. Parents and children, siblings. I mean, it can destroy families. It can destroy churches. The church I grew up in, I remember in high school, went through a split. It, it just it devastated so much of the witness and work of that church. Uh, I, the last two churches I passed before I came here split before I ever got there, they split. And the last one in particular, that was almost 20 years ago. I mean, I spent nine years there. I, I was there two years. I got there two years after they split. They were in trouble. I spent nine years there. No, I spent 10 years there. I'm sorry. I can't, even, I can't spell. I can't add. My mind's mush. I don't know. I'm getting old. So, 10 years. I was there 10 years. And I, I, you know, I know God does all things, not people. I get that. I, I don't think I ever, I don't know that I did any good at all. They still haven't fully recovered. It's devastating. He says, so if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He is finished. That word finished means it's over. The, he's, he's lost. He's, he's defeated himself. Why would he do that? In verse 27, he says this, but no one can enter the strong man's house. The, the phrase no one in the Greek is a double negative, which, which is emphatic. It basically says this, it's impossible to enter the strong man's house and plunder his property. Unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, I, I was reading not too long ago. I mean, back in the 80s when pro wrestling was at its peak, and I know they still do it and all that, I guess, and all that stuff. But back then they had these colorful characters like Hulk Hogan, and they had Andre the Giant. No one ever beat Andre the Giant. He's huge. And there was, I remember, I remember one of those WrestleMania things, that Hulk Hogan finally beat Andre the Giant. Years later, Hulk Hogan said this. He said, the only reason I beat Andre the Giant is because he let me. That was in the contract. And no one even knew if he, they had to pay him a ton of money to do that. He was the biggest, strongest, meanest guy you would ever meet in the ring. He said no one could beat him. It was impossible for one man to beat him unless he let him. He was that big, massive, and strong. No one can go plunder the home of the strong man unless he first binds the strong man, which means this, unless he's stronger and bigger and can do it. If Satan is the strong man, there is only one who can bind Satan. In other places, Jesus talks about binding Satan. And we'll see that later in the series. Only God is stronger than Satan. By the way, Satan and God are not two equal but opposite powers. <laughs> Satan is an inferior, weaker imitator, usurper of the one true God. He is always, in his holiness, more powerful. He says, no one can hear the strong man unless he's stronger. And then he says some things that are pretty tough. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. By the way, all sins. How many sins? All, 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 all sins. And whatever blasphemies they utter, a blasphemy is to speak against God. And people blaspheme God all the time. Blasphemies can be forgiven. People who blaspheme against God can be forgiven. I mean, an atheist obviously blasphemes against God because they deny the existence of God, so they can be forgiven. All of them can be forgiven. But you get the, you get the sense there's a but in here somewhere, don't you? Well, there is. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They, they were accusing Jesus of being Satan. So here's the thing. 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, the Trinity has always existed. God, who is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the understanding of the Trinity was revealed in the New Testament times. But Jews always knew that God worked through his Spirit. So the idea of the Spirit of God operative in the world revealing the power of God is a completely Jewish thought. And Jesus calls that the Holy Spirit of God, which it is. He's God's Holy Spirit. He's saying the Holy Spirit has revealed something to these scribes. He's revealed something to you guys. What he has revealed is in me. That I have the power of God because I'm God. But you're attributing that power. You're assigning that power to Satan. And when you assign the power of God to Satan, what you have done is committed a sin to all eternity. It is without forgiveness. That's what they had done. They had said that all that Jesus did was because he was Satan. And by doing that, here's what they did. They placed themselves of their own decision outside of the forgiveness of God. Not that God wouldn't forgive. That they had chosen to reject God to such a degree by attributing him to Satan. But they would never be able to experience forgiveness. They had a total rejection of Christ. They had already rejected Jesus. And in their rejection, they were attributing him to Satan. You see, some have rejected the call of Jesus to repent, believe, and follow by a final, decisive, and stubborn refusal to acknowledge what they know is true. They know something to be true. And they have rejected it one final, decisive time. So that is Jesus and the unpardonable sin. Which leads me to the second thing I want to talk about. You and the unpardonable sin. People have so many misunderstandings of the pardonable sin. Some think being unforgiven or being the unforgivable is murder or adultery. That's obviously not true. Paul couldn't have been saved if murder was unforgivable. I mean, if murder and adultery and a few other things were unforgivable, who in the world is ever going to be saved? I mean, seriously. It's, just, it's not the common everyday sins. I'm not saying it's okay to sin. I'm saying that's not what he's talking about. There's two things that are key here. One is the word blasphemy. The idea of blasphemy is to take the holiness of God and to make the holy God common or profane. You can do it by lifting yourself up and saying, I am the equivalent of God, which means sinful man is the equivalent of God, which profanes God. Or you can do it by bringing God down like an atheist would do. So it is somehow an attack on the holiness of God, the revealing holiness power of God. The context of what happens, what matters. Because these were guys who knew that Jesus had to be God. All the, these, were, these were the scholars who knew everything there was to know. They knew, based on their past, based on who God is, their theology, Jesus had to be God. There's no other solution. And in rejecting him, they attributed him to being Satan. So that's a very deliberate thing. In fact, here's what the unpardonable sin really is. The unpardonable sin is to clearly and deliberately reject the Holy Spirit revealed truth about Jesus by attributing his nature and his works to Satan. Notice, it's clear and deliberate. You know exactly what you're doing. It's not accidental. It's not confused. It's clear. It's intentional. And it's a rejection of what the Holy Spirit has revealed. The truth. You know what is true. You reveal, you take that, you reject it. But not only do you reject it, if you just rejected it, you're still forgivable. 
but you attribute it to Satan. You say God is of the devil. And once you go down that road, there is no turning back. So here's the thing. Being an atheist isn't unforgivable because atheists get forgiven all the time. Being a skeptic isn't unforgivable. Being, being just a habitual sinner and a jerk and a horrible human isn't unforgivable. In fact, to most of my knowledge, I have never met a person who has committed this sin. I know they can't. I just don't think I've ever done it. However, I have met so many people who reject Jesus. See, for them, I want to say your problem isn't the unpardonable sin. Your problem is you reject Jesus as Savior, and here's the thing. The end result's the same. <laughs> don't, don't, the good news is you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. The bad news is the result's the same thing. It's the judgment. It's the separation. It's the missing out on a relationship with God. It's hell. Eternal hell. Because you have rejected the Savior. You rejected the one who can save you. Now, can you repent of it? Absolutely. What did Jesus do? Jesus says, repent, believe, and follow. You just keep saying no. That's on you. You can't say yes, but you choose to say no. And the people we encounter, and the people we meet who don't follow Christ have just decided, whether it's just one time or many times, to say no. They're going to live their life their way. Even if they don't know about Jesus, they're still refusing to come to God. They have opportunities to do things to help them come to know Jesus. And I meet people sometimes who just refuse to ever do it. I, I, I've known folks who I, I've talked with them and towards the end of their life maybe about Christ. And they'll just say, I can't. I'm like, what do you mean you can't? They'll say, I've spent my whole life rejecting him. I can't follow him now. It would be wrong. I'm like, why would it be wrong to follow Jesus now and experience eternal life? No, they say it would be wrong because it made me a hypocrite. I'm like, so? You know how many hypocrites are in heaven? But they just won't do it. I've met people who say, you know, God will never forgive me. What do you mean never forgive you? He just said he'll forgive anything. I mean, no matter what you've done, Jesus will forgive. I'll talk about David. He forgave, you know, God forgave David in the Old Testament. He forgave Paul. He forgave Peter. Forgive anyone. No. He won't forgive me. And they know. I mean, they, they know. I have friends of mine who know they're wrong, who are unbelievers, who are atheists, and they know they're wrong. I mean, they've all but confessed to me they know their atheism is wrong. They won't come to Jesus. They keep rejecting him. And if that is you, then be careful that you don't reject Jesus so much. You become incapable of following. Be careful. You don't reject him so much that you become incapable of following. I remember someone put it to me like this one time. It says, you imagine a group of friends going out to the wilderness somewhere, the mountains, the desert, the forest, whatever wilderness, vast place. And they all 
say you stick together. You've got to stick together. And one of them, who's a novice, decides to go off on his own. And so he goes off into the wilderness, whatever it may be. And he's gone for a while. He realizes he's lost. His friends realize he's lost. They start yelling out, calling to him. And he hears them calling. He says, okay, I can hear their voice. But I'm not ready to go back yet. I still want to keep exploring. So he goes off a little further. And they keep calling him, but he keeps going a little further. And as they call him, he realizes it becomes harder and harder to hear them, but he still has time, and so he keeps going further. And at some point, he walks so far into the wilderness, he can't hear them call anymore. Oh, they're still calling. He just can't hear them. He's put himself in a place to no longer hear the call. And you and I, if we reject Jesus enough, can put ourselves in a place. We never hear him again. No, you didn't commit the unforgivable sin. But the results are just the same. The danger, if we keep refusing to follow Jesus, is we will never follow him. But we can break through all of that, not on our own power, but by the power of Christ. The Christ who says repent and believe and follow. If we will obey him, we can have a breakthrough and break away from that which seems so unforgivable, that rejection of Jesus. I hope if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and I pray, and I pray this all the time for this series, that at some point in the weeks and maybe the months to come, going through the Gospel of Mark, read it, I hope you read it on your own, that you'll come to Christ and trust Him to be your Savior. Don't let the weeks and months go by without you following him. But if you want to follow him today, you can. You can trust Christ today to be your Savior. You can give your life to him. And in just a moment, a few of us will be standing here. And if you want to come and give your life to Christ, you can come and talk to one of us. If you have a friend that you're worried about or a family member, and I know you pray for them, we'll pray with you. Don't quit calling them. Don't, don't you let them get too far out in the wilderness. You keep following them into the woods. You keep calling them every chance you get. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Pray for them. If you have a burden in your life, you want us to pray with you, we'll do that. If you want to join our church, you can. Here's the thing. Whatever's going on in your life, understand this. You can have a breakthrough. You can break away from rejecting Jesus. And you can follow him. And we thank you, God. In the midst of a very hard to understand passage, there is still clarity that we don't have to reject Jesus. That the call to repent, believe, and follow is always there. And while, Father, it's good to know that we're not going to commit the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Nonetheless, if we're not careful, if we keep rejecting Jesus, the result's the same. So, Father, those who have rejected, let them repent. And believe and let them follow. Father, let them have a breakthrough. Let them break through to Christ. And let them know what it is to be saved. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.